Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan. And Cassidy Zachary. Welcome, Dressed listeners, to part two of our two-part episode with Christine of Sosteen. As her website reads, April, embroiderer, doctor, mom, costumer, wife, gamer, not always in this order. (laughs) I mean, is there anything this woman cannot do? I would wager no. As our listeners might remember, she's also an anesthesiologist, a full-time doctor during COVID. And so, I mean, she's just incredible. And I'm so grateful that she took the time out of her busy schedule to talk to us about her passion. And earlier this week on Tuesday, she took us behind the scenes of her historical costuming experience. And today we get to go behind her wardrobe. And you are being a literal here, Cass, because today Christine talks about the reality of dressing in period clothing. And that also includes a conversation about undergarments, which of course, hint, hint, we might be doing a little bit of a deep dive into that subject upcoming on this season, (laughs) coming sometime soon. Yes. So stay tuned for that. So without further ado, let's drop back into our conversation with Christine. Something I want to talk to you about, because I feel like it comes up time and time again in conversations about historical clothing, is today in our modern sensibilities, we have such a hard time comprehending how women were active and mobile in the past and what so many of us see as restrictive clothing. You know, we look back, it's like, oh, I can never do, you know, spend all day wearing a corset. And, you know, your wardrobe runs the gamut from... 18th century, perhaps you have earlier, I don't know, to 20th century dresses, all with their own unique construction styles and undergarments. And so I have two questions for you. One is where and how do you store all of this clothing? (laughs) And two, most importantly, what is it like to wear it? And are there some periods you enjoy wearing more than others? Oh my God. Well, how to store it is its own story. Uh, (laughs) Luckily in the Midwest, houses are cheap and you can get a fairly large house. So I have an attic room where I store my costumes. I've noticed that as long as you don't compress the silks, they don't wrinkle. It's really the compression. So I usually, um, each dress has its own plastic bin that uh, with its own lid so that it doesn't get compressed. And I just pile them on top of each other and I have a whole wall of them. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. I mean, people always ask too how people stored these dresses in the past. And it really is similar, I think. There's like big drawers or, um, you know, closets essentially that you would either hang or flat lay your, your clothing. So that, that makes sense. I don't hang my dresses. Cause I feel like if you hang them, especially by the shoulders, it tends right. to lose shape. And I love my shoulders to fit correctly because arm movement is essential, which is something <laughs> I'll touch upon as well. When I answer your other question, how is it to wear them? And Oh man, it's amazing to wear them. Incidentally, I hate putting them on and doing my hair and all that, but I'm also someone who doesn't really wear makeup on a day-to-day basis. So I'm a t- generally a no-futs girl. In fact, I have a whole series of videos about how to make dresses that are easy to put on and off. So 
But that being said, once I'm in these dresses, I am so comfortable. So, you know, that Bridgerton scene where they're really tight lacing that girl and you see the bleeding backs and everything. Without a chemise. <laughs> Without a chemise. And I will touch upon that more later. But, but the thing is, like, actual 18th century, especially 18th century, people didn't really tight lace. I think there's one or two reports of certain fashionistas like uh, Georgina Cavendish, who's known for her fashionably small waist. Uh, but for the most part, like, nobody tight lace because, and if you look at the dresses that shows, they have very large waistlines. You, you very rarely get a small waisted dress. And, you know, the whole idea behind the 1700s was that not that you had a small waist, but that you made your waist look small by having a corset that was really not a corset, it's called stays and we can get into that. But um, really, it was more like a bra, you know, it gave you some back support, it gave you some breast support and women wore them because it really was comfortable to wear underneath your clothing and they functioned as a supportive garment. And for me, I don't make my own corsets because I think that's an art form in of itself. And also corset making is very hard on the hands and I need my hands to do hospital work, not for corsetry. I tend to like to do the more softer, gentler things like drawing on a computer with my hands. <laughs> so once I'm actually in these dresses, I really feel very comfortable. I very rarely tight lace myself into my dress. I'll tight lace if I'm in doing a photo shoot with Lindsay and I just I need to wear it for 10 minutes so it looks good in that particular photo. And even then, I don't tight lace every era. I usually just will wear it normally. And that's how my dresses are designed to fit, not with tight lacing, but with just normal corsetry. So in fact, if you look, uh, measure my waist before and after a set of stays from the 18th century, um, in my stays, my waist is actually about an inch larger. Oh, okay. Interesting. Is the corset adding girth to your waistline then and the, eventually the outcome of the dress? So I'm imagining then that you drape your patterns over what you would imagine your corset to be. Yes. In fact, my dress form is me wearing a corset already. It's wearing an 18th century corset. I actually ordered a second dress form for my Victorian so that since that one's different. But in my 18th century corset, my waist actually goes from a 26 inch waist to a 27 inch waist because the boning and the fabric actually adds girth. And yet at the same time, if you look at the photos, my waist looks smaller because you have that conical shape of the torso. And then you have these giant pillows at your waist making the panniers go out, the pillows or the hoops, which make your waist look smaller by comparison. So even if your waist is actually wider, you can't tell. And that's part of the beauty of it. Yeah. And that wasn't the point necessarily either. Exactly. You know, you didn't want to look like you starved yourself and couldn't afford food. You wanted to look rich. Yeah, it's such an interesting thing to think about the history of corsets because I know Dr. Valerie Still, who we've had on the show, who's like the historian of corsets, <laughs> she, um, you know, writes about how the corset becomes internal in, you know, with the body culture of the post 60s and 70s and 80s of the 20th century. But prior to that, you could change your shape based on the garments you wore. It wasn't about what you ate, like you just mentioned. And and being skinny would have been a reflection of of your status, so... And uh, for that reason, actually, 18th century is my favorite period to wear. I can just wear 18th century all day, like every day. Like I, one trip that I had planned was I was planning on going to Colonial Williamsburg with my family this year. And we were going to spend about five days and I was going to get dressed up and stay in an 18th century garb all day. And, you know, obviously that's out the window for now. But at the same time, you know, I was willing to do that because 18th century is in fact that comfortable. The uh, When my husband and I went to Venice in February last year, 
we actually wore our 18th century garb, including me in stays. And I literally walked about three miles around Venice with no problems, no shortness of breath. And I was able to keep up with him just fine. And, you know, um, the other thing about arm motion, I just want to add is that the arm motion of actual historical garments is fantastic. They're in fact more comfortable than a lot of modern suits. And I make sure when I sew my garments that the uh, arms are very comfortable because I think that can sometimes reflect bad sewing more than, you know, historical accuracy. So you mentioned you love 18th century clothes, but I saw in an interview where you gave a very specific period that is your favorite. Can you tell us what that era is? And then if you could take us through getting dressed in that period, because I think it's so cool. And you have a video. I saw one video um, with your Art Nouveau dress. Um, which is a turn of the 20th century dress where you you did you showed us you getting dressed from all the way from your base undergarments to the the ball gown itself. But I'd love if you could take us through this 18th century um, period and what women would have worn and what you wear. So in the 18th century, um, my favorite time period is exactly 1740 to 1780. And generally, I think it's because I really like the shape of that era and I love how roughly it is. I think I mentioned that the formative time in my childhood was putting on this ruffled pink dress and my love of ruffles has only increased with the years. So (laughs) I'd say my single favorite era is probably 1755 to 1780, but I also do some earlier as well. But the way that the garments work is you start off with a chemise. There's no panties, no bloomers, nothing, just a chemise. And it's like a shift. It just collects your sweat so it doesn't go on the rest of your garments because the linen tends to soak it up because that's what linen does. And then on top of that, you would wear your stays or your corset, however you want to put it. And then on top of that, you would then put on your petticoat if you wanted an under petticoat. And this might be made of wool to keep you warmer. And then on top of that, you would wear either a bum roll, pocket hoops, the side panniers, or a bum roll, or whatever really made that era popular. So in this between 1740 and 1750 and 1760 and every decade had its own shape in terms of the skirt that was popular. So and you'd wear a different skirt support. And some are more comfortable than others. And some even had built in pockets, which is amazing. I want to add that every era in the 18th century had their own version of pockets. So you did not go pocketless, you know? Yeah, we actually did a two part episode at the beginning of the season on the history of pockets. And so I'm so glad you mentioned that because women would tie their pockets on as one of their last base layers because you would then reach through your skirt. Although some of them actually wore it on the outside of the garments too. Yes, you would put on another petticoat to sort of smooth out the shape of the bum roll. But on top of that, you would wear the pocket. And the pocket is like literally this oval-ish shaped, teardrop-shaped piece that you would tie onto your waist that has a slit in it and you could put like whatever you wanted, you know. When I went to to Versailles, I put water bottles and vodka in mine, you know, like, oh, and a camera. (laughs) But the thing is like, you know, uh, you could, people would decorate it. People would do a lot of hand sewing and they would put their favorite animals, favorite flowers. And uh, for me last year, I made a special pair for myself that I then put online. I worked with another artist called SK Madrano, who actually came up with the idea. And this is a literal picture of a dumpster on fire. And then there's beautiful 18th century swirls and flowers coming out of it. And uh, I did put the files up for sale on my Etsy store where I sell, I do share my files because I think if I digitize this, you know, if other people want it, they should have their opportunity to get their hands on it too. 
And uh, it's been immensely popular. Bernadette Banner made a video about it and everything. Yeah, I just watched the whole thing because you can buy the silk, the flat silk pattern, and then you cut it and make it yourself. Um, I think you have someone else who's producing those those actual panels that you can then buy and make it yourself. And then you can watch the Bernadette Banner video and show how to, she completely hand makes it. But it's such an incredible thing. It's basically like an 18th century version of a fanny pack. And I'm here for it. And I want one. <laughs> I think Bernadette wears hers on the outside too, which makes me incredibly happy. It's so cool. I think it should be the 2021 fashion statement. I'm just going to put that out there. Outside pockets for everyone. They're so convenient and they're really beautiful, especially the ones you've produced. Well, Cassidy, (laughs) I will send you one after this. I am still filling orders. The problem is I'm actually booked up till March. So I asked another friend of mine to start selling it because they're still popular. One question I know people are going to be thinking when we think undergarments, and I just want to make sure I don't forget, is can you sit in a bustle? Because that's a question that I think a lot of people also ask. And you happen to know because you also, of course, have created many a bustle gown. First off, I love bustles. And oh my God, they're so easy to sit in. There's this whole mythos about, you know, if you have a bustle, you can't sit. And to the point where I think Morgan Donner made a video where she put a chair in hers. And the fact is, you're really easy to sit in. You literally just lean back and it just collapses. The whole thing is made out of wire, but it's not like the way that you think of wire, which is firm. It's more like a slinky. It just like slinks up. I have a YouTube video. um, It's like 30 seconds long, which shows how to sit in a bustle. And you see the inner mechanism of how it just collapses on itself. And I do want to say that, you know, when I'm wearing 1880s, it's actually fairly comfortable. The corset uh, that you wear really does hold the structure and the weight of all the skirts behind you. You know, people in the past, they weren't dumb, you know, it's not impossible. I have personally made mistakes where I made the train way too heavy. For instance, there is a picture of a red ball gown that I made myself, and I'm never going to wear it outside of photo shoots because I made a mistake and I made the train too heavy, but that's my personal mistake, not something that's due to the nature of the dress. Yeah, and I think what people forget looking back is women had to wear these dresses and had to be able to function in them. So they made them comfortable and wearable. Um, I think Abby Cox has a wonderful video too about how she, you know, wore, you know, 18th century dress for five years. And it's just such a myth that it's not comfortable because you were comfortable wearing it both mentally and physically, um, because you knew you were in the fashion, but you also wore clothing that was made for your body that fit you. Are there any periods that are more comfortable than others? I'm thinking specifically about the S-curve silhouette. You made this beautiful Cayo Sur-based evening gown. Um, It's modeled after um, a gown in the Palais Galliera. That is an era where the, you know, notorious S-bend steel-boned corset comes into being. Is that corset, for instance, not as comfortable as, say, your earlier 18th and earlier 19th century corsets? I will confess the S-Bend corset is probably my least favorite corset to wear. I consider 1880s very comfortable. It's not quite as comfortable as 18th century where I can, you know, I could probably wear it for five years and I'd be very happy. But on the other hand, the S-Bend corset is it does like, because the way that you're most comfortable is actually if you kind of pigeon yourself forward, like like a pigeon, you kind of push, jut your chest out forward and your back out, out towards the back because that's how the course is designed for you to just kind of naturally sit like that. And when I'm actively trying to sit like that and like trying to doing it now, you know, even though no one can see me, 
it's actually fairly comfortable. It's not the most uncomfortable thing I've certainly worn. And I certainly don't tight lace myself into that one either. I don't really tight lace myself into anything. Just without tight lacing, I would say I get a one inch reduction. But that era has these like literal pillows. Like they have, they have bust improvers that you can <laughs> put that. on the front. <laughs> and I'm a, you know, I'm a 32 double A. So that's absolutely necessary for the pigeon breast that you need. And then you have these other pillows that for your hips that go under the corset. And between all of those things, it gives you that perfect silhouette. On the other hand, like, you know, you really are only comfortable when you jut yourself forward. And it's just very unnatural. And I personally would never drive in that because driving in a modern chair, <laughs> I think would be very, very difficult to like kind of lean forward in your car. Like it's just not designed like that. Yeah, absolutely. And it, obviously there weren't, cars were available back then, but they weren't, you know, as widespread as they are today. And they're certainly evolved. So it's interesting to also think about where you would have worn these dresses, how you would have sat in these dresses in those specific periods versus today. Although there's that wonderful video from American Duchess of the Gigo Girl Gang, and they all like... Five of them in their giant 1830s Gigo sleeve dresses fit in like this tiny little car to go to a festival. And I love it. And speaking of festivals, that actually leads me to my next question. Because pre-COVID, you've mentioned a couple events. You mentioned Venice, although you didn't mention the event specifically, but I'm guessing you were there for an event. Uh, you mentioned Colonial Williamsburg. Where would you have worn these gowns? And do you have a favorite past event that you are looking forward to attending once COVID is in our past? Oh my. So there are wonderful balls all over the world. Colonial Williamsburg holds a ball once a year in the fall. You mentioned Venice. Venice is Carnival. And Carnival takes place usually in uh, January for about two weeks. And in Venice, they have these beautiful public and private balls that you can go into because Venice is full of these beautiful old palaces. So people will actually hold 18th century balls where you have to go in a costume that is considered quote unquote high quality. So you can rent them there or you can make your own and bring them. And you can go to these amazing balls in these old palaces and you they're lit by candles and you just dance and drink the night away in these beautiful palaces. But by far and away, my favorite would be the Fête Galance in Versailles in Paris, outside of Paris once a year in May. And okay, so the Fête Galance is the one day where uh, Versailles opens its doors and lets people come in costume because Versailles usually doesn't let anyone come into costume, not even to the gardens. And they obviously do that for, you know, preserve the old palace, but also because that way no one thinks that you work there and everything. Sort of like how Disney doesn't let people like go into Disney in costume, which totally makes sense. But on the other hand, getting to go once a year for these balls is amazing. They Usually when you go to uh, Versailles, and I've been there without the event running before, like, you know, you have thousands of people crammed in this like tiny little area. You kind of walk in a line through the Hall of Mirrors. As opposed to Fête Galance, where you go in and they, I think it's like a limit of like 700 people. So it's really, you have a lot of room and you go in, you're only allowed if you have a quote unquote high quality costume from 1690 to about 1789, I think, which is when um, Marie Antoinette was deposed. And then you go in, you drink champagne, you eat macaroons, they have historical foods. And then on top of that, they teach you the old 18th century uh, dances. So you actually dance in the Hall of Mirrors to actual 18th century music. 
And then on top of that, they bring you on tours. You go into the chapel where you have someone singing actual historical songs that you can listen to. And they give you tours of the back rooms that they don't normally let people into. It's just this magical evening of dancing and merriment. I will let you know, people, that it is hot. It is so, so (laughs) hot in there. So bring a fan. Which is, of course, as we know, historically accurate. And I've seen pictures from this and we'll post pictures. I mean, it is absolutely transformative seeing all of these people and all of the wigs and their hair done and and the costumes. And it's just so incredibly beautiful. And just for this one night, you can imagine what it would have been like to have been there during this hundred year period. I mean, what an incredible experience. I really hope you go, Cassidy. I think you're going to love it. <laughs> I think that's a life, a bucket list goal for sure. My sister and I have been talking about it for so many years um, and we've always loved that period. We just need to create a dress to make it. How do you travel with a dress there? That's what I want to know. So uh, the same way that I'm I'm insistent that the key to everything um, not getting there wrinkled and having to try to steam it, which doesn't really work quite as well when you don't have like time and time and time to let it rest is you know, put it in a box, make sure the box doesn't get crushed and make sure that inside the box, you know, your dress is nice and cushy and soft and not being crushed. And that's how you make sure it's not crushed on on the way there. The hardest part for me is actually doing the hair there because I don't have Mallory Harris to do my hair for me. (laughs) Well, I've seen pictures and you did quite well. You've done quite well. And thank you. Yeah. For people who can't afford to do the, you know, these are extravagances. These are like once for many people like myself, probably once in a lifetime experiences. But for people who can't make those treks or can't afford those treks, can you talk a little bit about how you can participate in the historical costuming um, community? Because I know you yourself, for instance, you've created a local chapter in St. Louis, a local historical society, basically, where you all can dress up and, and join in your shared love of historical costuming. And those those organizations exist in every I would argue, you know, major city, but also smaller cities, every state for sure across the United States and around the world has these organizations. Can you tell us a little bit about yours? Ours is the St. Louis Historical Costuming Society. And I'm the president of it. I started this about three years ago. It really just, I would tell everyone, look on Facebook to see if there is a local group near you. Ours is in St. Louis, but I would say we get people all the way from Kansas City who are willing to drive four hours to come hang out with us. And it's really amazing how the city of St. Louis has kind of welcomed us with open arms. So uh, what we'll do is we'll hold events depending on the time period. We were originally the St. Louis Georgians, but we have expanded, which is why we have changed our name. But for instance, uh, the local symphony, we go once a year or we used to go once a year. And for instance, we would pick a Beethoven piece and it would be like an 1816 year. So we would tell everyone, try to aim for about 1816. So we all go in 1860s clothes and we all have something to sew for and we all have an event to look forward to. And when we get there, we go and we, you know, we hang out with people we like, people who really like the same things that we like. And, you know, initially when I started this, I was by myself and I was just, online talking to people going, ah, I wish, you know, I wish I was like LA. I wish I had my own thing. And I started this group hoping to meet maybe like two or three other people. And now there's 70 of us. And usually for one of the 70, I'm really proud of 70. And (laughs) 
for one of these events, we'll have as many as like 35 people show up for like the symphony and it all gives us something to look forward to and so forth. So for instance, in April, we were supposed to go to um, have high tea at our favorite local patisserie and we were all going to dress up as gowns um, inspired by Marie Antoinette, the movie. So... Oh, wonderful. And and I will say, dress listeners, if you don't have one of these societies or, you know, organizations in your city or nearby you, maybe you can start your own like Christine did and watch it blossom. Okay, more from Christine after a brief sponsor break. Welcome back, dress listeners. So Christine and dress listeners, as we all know, we have been seeing for quite some time now, the worldwide reverberations across industries, organizations in light of the Black Lives Matter movement and, you know, the events of 2020, um, with many people and organizations really having to reckon and come to terms with what is honestly systemically ingrained racist policies and practices. Some people were aware of them. Some people were not aware of them. Now we're all aware of them. Um, And Christine, many people in historical costuming have been quite vocal and active about addressing diversity issues and exclusionary practices within the historical costuming community. And you yourself have been part of this conversation. I've watched many incredible panels featuring you and your wonderful perspective and insights. Can you tell us a little bit about what this process has been like? So when I started in this costuming society about, you know, this entire community about six years ago, you know, there were very few people of color. And I always thought, you know, why is that? And it became really obvious after a couple of events. Uh, For instance, whenever I posted a picture of myself in a historical dress, a lot of people would be like, well, is it historically accurate to have someone who's Asian wearing, you know, French era costumes? And to me, that's a non-issue because it's a costume. I, you know, it's not important. It's, I can pretend to be whoever I want to be. It's a costume. You know, we know that we're not these people who were alive 200 years ago. Right. And um, it was, you know, some people just out straight out tell me, you don't, you know, well, you're not historically accurate. And other people would say, well, you know, is that really what she would be wearing? Or if you were really in that court or other people would then, you know, be like, oh, you're so beautiful. You'd make a great slave to the Chinese emperor. And so really the kind of stuff that made you wince and the part of what made it hurt so much is that people would listen, but no one would actually say anything. And I would just felt very alone. And it became very apparent that a lot of people that I spoke to who of color kind of left the community because these microaggressions would build up. And instead of addressing it, they just felt like, you know, I don't even want to deal with this. I shouldn't have to deal with this to do something for fun. That is a hobby. And, you know, a lot of different communities have experienced it. For instance, I think that the systemic racism within the Star Wars costuming community is something that's very, very well known. And so initially I I started speaking out about it because, you know, I just wanted someone else to know that these things were happening and that, you know, maybe we should all be aware that they're there so that if someone sees this happening to someone else of color, we can, you know, we can, we know to speak up that these things are just not a one-off, that these things build up. And since then, you know, a lot of other people of color came to me and said, hey, thank you so much for saying this. You know, I've wanted to join this, but I've been too scared. And, you know, since we have started talking about it, I think more and more people have actually joined up who are of color. And it's really nice to see it happen because, I mean, it also says that we have more allies, too. 
One of those allies is Noelle of Costuming Drama. She's an historical costumer and a YouTuber. And she's done two now incredible panels that have featured yourself and other historical costumers of color. The first one, which I watched last year, which is just incredible, and we're, of course, going to provide links to it, is called Inclusion in the Costuming Community. And then the most recent one, which leads me to my next question, why Bridgerton is problematic. <laughs> so I'd love if we could, you know, I think this is the the show of the hour and I cannot let you go today without talking about this show. Um, this was a wonderful panel conversation. Again, we're going to link to it. And I think in general, you all loved and appreciated or really liked and appreciated the show, but it was it's really important to have these conversations about the ways that it could have improved and been better. Um, and I'm hoping that you can give us your perspective on Bridgerton. So I first want to say I really enjoyed the books. I read them six years ago, and I think they're fantastic and fun. Uh, that being said, I don't think that there's anything wrong with asking things to be better and I saw the Netflix series be announced last year and I was so excited because it's Regency, it's for a book series I enjoy. And I just, you know, I think this is something we could all really have fun with. And completely honestly, I think they got a lot of things right. You know, I think that they, by just having, you know, black people and people of minorities mixed in, it gives us a way to be in historical period dramas without being either a servant or not there at all. Of note, though, like they also did a lot of things, I think, a little bit badly. There's a lot of colorism issues. You know, the Black characters definitely got the worst stories and the most tragic stories. And that definitely, for sure, like if you look quite simply, like the most evil characters are always the darkest colored people on the show. And, you know, those are big issues that, you know, we can ask them to be better. It doesn't mean that we hate it. It doesn't mean that we want it to be canceled. We just want them to be better. And I also want to say that there were no speaking Asians, and I was so excited for that. But we know that those Asians exist in that world because they did show us. And by not having anyone really speak for more than one sentence, it was kind of painful. I'm so excited to see one Asian female in 18th century garb in, in a talking role. I can't wait. Like, it has to happen sometime, right? <laughs> Yeah, and I think what that show really showed us, and you guys all talked about this, is that you can do these historical, you know, quote unquote, fantasy shows and don't don't even try to explain it. Just do it. Just present it. And I think they do one sentence where they try to explain. There's a couple very brief periods where they try to explain, you know, the relationship and how the king married the Black queen and therefore it helped with these relations. But they never, that was it. It was like very brief. It wasn't a central storyline. So why do it at all? Why not just represent people and do it and, and do it in a way that people can be really proud of. Christy, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate you taking the time, especially being a doctor, full-time doctor during COVID, taking the time to share with us your passion for fashion history and historical costuming. You're really an inspiration. And I'm just, it's just such a pleasure to meet you and talk to you. Thank you so much, Cassie. It's been such a pleasure to be here. I just want to encourage people that if you want to get involved, it's a really wonderful community. And I do want to say that, you know, the racism that I encountered in the past has largely gone now because everyone's fully aware of it. And we are always getting better. And I think that as a community, I would love to see more people join us. Yeah. And that was something I wanted to ask you, like, what are the positive changes that you've seen? Because I think we have, we've seen so many positive changes happening. Obviously, we still have ways to go, but with people like you leading the charge, I mean, we only are going to see beautiful, positive things in the future. So thank you so much for sharing this all with us. Thank you, Cassidy. 
Thank you so much for joining us, Christine. What an inspiration, Cass. And, and, you know, again, we just want to remind our listeners that Christine is a full-time doctor who has really also used her international platform to promote safe COVID practices. And her video on face masks now has over 1 million views on YouTube. So definitely check out her YouTube, her Instagram at handle at Sosteen and her website, Sosteen.com, where you can buy among many of Christine's wonderful embroidery patterns that we talked about. You can also buy your very own 18th century pocket embroidery panel. (laughs) And these pockets include the beautiful and equally amusing aptly named Dumpster Fire Pocket for 2020, designed by (laughs) Keisha Beck Medrano. And the pop culture phenomenon that has become Bernie Sanders and his mittens. So bring back the pockets and Christine is here to help you do that. Yes. And uh, of course, like a lot of our listeners will remember, uh, last week we actually did a two-part episode on the history of the pocket. And so many of you reached out to us um, forwarding us Christine's post of her Bernie Sanders <laughs> pockets. And we're like, yeah, she, she's going to be on the show next week. But but this was like complete happenstance. Like she was already scheduled to be on the show previously. So it's not because of the Bernie pockets. It just happened to like dovetail completely perfectly with our episode from the week before. So yeah, perfect companion. And uh, definitely check out these pockets. I think April and I will be donning ours this year. <laughs> Until then, that does it for us this week, dress listeners. May you consider the history of residing in your closet next time you get dressed. We love hearing from you. So if you would like to email us, you can do so at dress at iheartmedia.com. You can also DM us on Instagram at dress underscore podcast, which is, of course, where you can find images accompanying each of our episodes. And you can also follow us on Facebook at Dressed Podcast without the underscore. And as always, special thanks to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio who makes this show possible each and every week. More Dressed coming your way on Tuesday. Dress, the history of fashion, is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.